Hey everyone, thank you for clicking on episode number 10 of Whipcast. I know it's been a while, but I'm back, and I have a very special guest for this episode, my friend Adam Winrich. Adam is perhaps the most influential person uh, to me uh, as a whip maker and a whip cracker. Oftentimes when I want to learn how to do something new for the first time, I'll turn to YouTube. It's a very powerful tool to help anyone learn something. There's a lot of uh, a lot of instruction, so I typed in bullwhip, and Adam's videos were among the first that I saw, and, and the ones that I enjoyed the most and was most intrigued by. So in this episode, we're going to talk with Adam about how he got into whips, um, the early life, some of his influences, and joining us is Steve Townsend and Blake Bruning. Blake invited myself, Adam, and Steve over to his place for a couple days, and we did everything uh, from visiting, laughing, telling old stories, to playing music together. Adam is a fantastic harmonica player. Uh, blues harmonica is his favorite. And Steve Townsend is an unbelievable guitarist, and I was very humbled and uh, fortunate uh, to be able to play music with, with the both of them. Another big thank you to Blake for inviting all of us over. I would have to say that these two days were perhaps the highlight of my 2018. I'm very fortunate um, and thankful to be friends with such, uh, such great people. So without any further ado, I'm Nick Schrader. You're listening to Whipcast. Here's Adam Winrich. Alongside my great friends Adam Winrich, Steve Townsend, and Blake Bruning. We're over at Blake Bruning's house today. Adam Winrich completed successfully two new world records. Um, one of them was the most eggs broken with a bull whip inside of 30 seconds. What was that, Adam? I think we did 23. 23. And then the other one was uh, the most balloons popped uh, with a whip inside of a minute, and we got 39. Those are two new world records, so we've just been having a great time here. Uh, Blake's been very generous letting us all hang out. It's been a good time. The Whip Bros did a little bit of jamming earlier. But, uh, Adam, uh, you, you are, I, I might say that you, you are the one that kind of revolutionized whip cracking in, in today's uh, you know, YouTube world, especially I would have never gotten into whips if, if it weren't for your videos. So, I mean... What what started it for you? And we'll, we'll talk about the world records uh, later on. But the whole whip world, how did you get into it? What started it for you? Well, like most people, I started whip cracking because of Indiana Jones. So I saw Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade when I was nine years old. My cousin took me, and I remember covering my face when the bad guy drank from the wrong chalice and blew away into bones and dust. And, but yeah, I saw the whip and I really wanted to get one, so I went home, my dad made me one out of rope. And then I wanted a better whip, but when I started in 1989, that was before the internet, so I couldn't watch videos uh, on the uh, Nick's Whip Shop channel to learn how to make my own whip. So I actually had to start with the Boy Scout Leatherworking Merit Badge Handbook, 
and I learned basic four strand round braid and just braided a round braid, sort of stuck a little piece of string on the end of it, tacked it to a handle. And I took those same strands I'd cut out and actually rebuilt it about four or five times between like the age of 10 and 11, maybe nine, trying to rebuild the thing until sure. I finally got a book. Excellent. Blake Bruning is joining us, the fourth whip bro. He's, uh, he's working his way in. He's about to sit down. Hang on, hang on. The four whip bros are in, in the dojo. Where are we right now? What? Morristown, Indiana. Yeah. This, we're actually sitting in Blake's uh, dojo where he instructs uh, the martial arts in here. This is just a not, a very, not a very conventional place to do a podcast, but it's working. It's pretty comfortable in here. So we're happy. So a um, little bit about your early life, Adam. What, what did you like to do? Where did, where did you grow up, first of all? What did you like to do as a kid? I grew up in Fall Creek, Wisconsin, which is a small town. When I grew up, it was about 1,100 people. I think it's maybe 1,300 people now. It's very close to a larger town of about 60,000, 70,000 people called Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And see, what did I do when I was younger? I guess I don't really remember. I mean, I remember being fascinated with general like movies and mm-hmm. superhero stuff. Like, I, since I was born in 1981... Um, I was at perfect age to really be really hit by He-Man. Hmm. I was big into He-Man for a couple years, and uh, I enjoyed playing with Legos, and I also liked the Rocketeer. Uh, so it's one of those things where I sort of, and I made my own little Rocketeer outfit. So I would say being in... Like, <laughs> pardon? Rocketeer was like, I love yeah. that show. And um, so I was always seeing movies, and always seeing what I could make from the movies. Even actually after I worked on making my own whip, from watching the Indiana Jones movies, mm-hmm. then when uh, the Kevin Costner movie uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out, I wanted a sword like Morgan Freeman had. Mm. So my dad gave me a piece of steel that was kind of curved and a grinder, and like, here, go to town. <laughs> went, over to my, nice. went over to my uncle's house and ground, or didn't grind on it, we welded a tang to the blade and then stuck a handle on it. Awesome. And then finally when we showed the finished thing to my mom, she was scared at how sharp I had gotten it. <laughs> He's too good at this. Oh, no. There's no... <laughs> how much this of a sword he actually made. Yeah. This backfired big time. Right. <laughs> so I was always influenced by movies and trying to make stuff from the movies. Sure. And it just happened to be that whips are kind of the one that stuck the most out of that kind of thing. Yeah. So was the, was the sword, was that before you made your first whip? Or that was, was after. That afterwards, okay. Do you still have your first whip? Yes. Curious. Very nice. Excellent. It does not look good. <laughs> the handle, the braiding is very bad because I didn't know any books. I forget if the last time I rebuilt it, if I had a book. As the book, the books that I started out with that not too many people probably read now, getting into whips. I don't even know if people, based on how the questions I get online from teenage boys and men trying to learn how to make whips, is I don't think anyone buys books anymore. Yeah. And um. So the books I got that I think that I started out with that I think very were important. Uh, first, yeah, the Boy Scout Leatherworking Merit Badge Handbook just taught me how to do a basic four-strand round braid, which initially was frustrating, but you have to know how to do that. It shows you how to make a lanyard. Yeah. So I started out with that book. And then the next book I got, we went on a trip out west when I was young. Uh, I think this was about 1992, somewhere, I think. There was a book out there by Dennis Rush called Whips and Whip Making. The same title as David Morgan's Whips and Whip Making, yeah. but it was, it was just a small, about 50-page little paperback 
uh, book, the brown cover, and he had and on the cover it had what I assume is an Indiana Jones bull whip that he himself, Dennis Rush, the author, had made because it didn't look like a Morgan whip, and a, and a jacket and a hat, and I was like, oh, this is great. And some of the stuff it really helped me with was, oh, there's supposed to be a bolster. Oh, there's a core. There's a, like with le- making leather whips. And it helped that he had a design for an eight-plat bull whip, a 12-plat Indiana Jones-style bull whip. I also want to say he had a design for a stock whip and a snake whip. And, and that really, really got me going and helped. was a big step ahead yeah. of what I did know. Did you stop that book? Do I still have it? Yeah. No. I don't know if I, somebody said, oh, I want to make whips. And I was like, I don't need this book anymore. And I sent it to him. I think mm. you can still find it places. I remember I asked David Morgan about it. And David Morgan said, oh, this guy just ripped off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, just ripped off Ron Edwards. Because the book had a lot of drawings in it, similar to what is in Ron Edwards' book, Ron Edwards' book, How to Make Whips. So I had that Dennis Rush book. And probably the next big thing I would have gotten was uh, this video, The Art of the Bull Whip, that Mark Allen made, mm-hmm. I think back in either, I think that was in the 80s he made that. Like you see basically all of the best whip crackers that were working in the United States at that time, either whip, some whip makers, like David Morgan appears in it. And that's a DVD that I feel like not enough people watch. Like there's mm. so much, so many good tricks and classic tricks in there. For sure. And you get to see David Morgan explain himself, like how mm. the whip mm. is made. It's a very classic clip. Yeah. So I think that one is really important. I got that on VHS tape um, when I was a kid. And um, and the next book after that, I don't know. I, sh- I should backtrack. That I think actually, bef- somewhere around maybe getting the Dennis Rush book, I remember going to the library downtown and they had bruce grant's book the encyclopedia of rawhide and leather braiding uh, yes, which that is a very important book mm. but even though david morgan did tell me that that bullwhip design is for the birds mm. because the way it's designed and i made one of them from bruce grant's book i don't know how you make one so it makes a good whip mm-hmm. yeah. but what ends up being you end up with a really chunky handle but the thong is very thin mm. because you basically to make it the design is you could create a basic tapered wooden handle and then you kind of, you, you taper the point of the handle, and then you're going to tack on the yoke of a four-plat overlay, or four-plat belly, excuse me, onto the wood, braid it, stick a little core in the end of the wood handle, braid over that core, so you can see if you just got one little strand and a four-strand braid, it won't be that big, and then you do like a 12-plat overlay mm-hmm. over the handle, over the whole wood, and then over the yoke that you tacked on, and then all the way down. If you get the book and look at the drawings, You'll understand what I made base. What I said basically describes it, but it didn't make a, ve- a very good whip. But it does show a lot of great knots, which makes yeah. it very important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some some whip makers don't like knots, and I myself do. I don't enjoy knots as much as real knot enthusiasts. Mm. Like I've spent time with Chris Barr in Australia. Mm-hmm. For those that are familiar with Peter Thorndike, who is winning a lot of awards right now, Chris Barr is basically the the guy, the main guy, Whitman guy in Australia before Peter Thorndike. A quick mm. side note about that is that um, in Australia, kind of each age or decade almost seems to have the it guy. That's the Whitmaker everybody goes to. Mm-hmm. So right now it's Peter Thorndike. He's winning all the awards. Before Peter, it was Chris Barr, and I spent time with Chris Barr. And then before Chris Barr, it was Dennis Gardner. Dennis Gardner is the one that trained Peter Thorndike. And before Dennis Gardner was um, another guy, Tony Nugent. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I have some Tony Nugent whips, and, and, I've, and I've spoken with him. 
And um, I'm not really sure in the modern like scope of the competition whip making who was before Tony Nugent. Um, but it's kind of once you get to Tony Nugent, then people start throwing out names like Cecil Henderson mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, I backtracked on the books that uh, say the, so knots are Im- important. And um, the nice thing about Bruce Grant's book, The Bullet Design is for the Birds, but you learn important knots such as what he calls the Spanish ring knot. You learn how to tie Turk's heads. You learn how to tie a pineapple knot, how to expand that pineapple knot. You learn a herringbone knot, which is a variation on the pineapple knot, which is really good to know. Mm-hmm. Because if you do a 4 by 5 Turk's head and you tie one, a, one, a pineapple knot into it, you end up with a single interweave. If you did it in two colors, you'd get one little band of extra color. Mm. But if you take that same basic 4 by 5 knot and you tie what he calls the herringbone knot, you end up with two bands instead of... Once so you learn different ways to be able to expand knots, mm-hmm. and it's also nice if you're working with something like parachute cord, which I mostly do now. Mm-hmm. The more knots you know, the more different shapes you can make your right. butt knot on your whip and adjust that. So, so if you know, right. like, I can, if you learn the lazy man knot, is another great one in Bruce Grant's book that was used a lot on the Buckheimer bullwhips, and that's a really important knot to know. And um, that uh, Chris Barr and uh, Charlie Hassett would put that on their knots because it ends up more egg shaped. Mm-hmm. than like circular or square shaped. And I like that. I like knots that have that, you know, the, the more of an oval rather than just straight, you know, perfectly round. Or I like right. the variations. That's good. Let's see. So where was I? So I was, uh, I was talking about books and stuff I thought was important. So I got Ron Edwards' book. Uh-huh. And one thing, Ron Edwards' book really is his, um, his stock whip design was a lot better. So I, I made one of those stock whips. I started learning about pattern work in Ron Edwards' book. And also... Um, what really helped me with Ron Edwards compared to the Dennis Rush book that I had is Dennis Rush's book, for some reason, showed you how to build a butt knot foundation hmm. out of putty, like wood putty. <sighs> and it was a real mess. Yeah. It was like a combination. You get this wood putty, and it's like you has got a set, and you wrap the string around it, and that's what holds it Sounds on. It's like a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's very messy. You're going to get it on the rest of the whip. It's yeah. terrible. So with Ron Edwards' book, he showed, oh, you just cut a long, basically, triangle of leather, tack one end to the handle, wrap it around, um, and put some more tacks in it, and you built your foundation. And that was way easier, and after I learned that, my knots got a lot cleaner. For sure. And then, from at least building knot foundations, then when I met, um, I'm trying to think. I, don't, I think Jim Hurlbut was the one that got me to use a staple gun instead of tacks. Mm-hmm. I don't remember using tacks a whole lot, but then, oh, you just staple this on? And then I actually yeah. showed that, I showed that, that whole method to Chris Barr when I met him. Because yeah. Chris Barr was tacking a very one piece, thick piece of leather in place and then trying to shape it with a grinder. Oh, and wow. I was like, that's terrible. Because like what grinding if grinding the leather then? Grinding the leather, wow. yeah. Tack it onto the handle, like even if it's plaited very fancy or whatever, then he's huh. um, going on a grinder, getting very close to his <laughs> braiding he just completed. Yeah. And I was like, that's terrible. Why don't you just do this thing? Just use a staple gun, yeah. wrap a thin piece of leather around, you can do three, four, five layers, whatever you need yeah. to do to build up the thickness, and then staple it in place, but you're not, and you're yeah. off to the races. Huh. Let's see. So Ron Edwards' book was good. I'm trying to think of... I didn't really use his bullwhip design that much, but learning the patterns was good. And then I learned more patterns when I spent time with uh, Jim Hurlbutt. But if anything, I'd say my learning process of like making whips, because that's mostly what I did mm-hmm. when I was younger. There wasn't as much whip cracking to learn about. Mm-hmm. Right. When, when I started, there was more to know about whip making, uh, I thought. So, so I did the, the book thing, and I only met Jim Hurlbutt um, 
when I was my early 20s, like basically my summer before my last year of college, about 2003, I met up with Jim Hurlbut. And my point with going out to meet him is that there's only so far you can get with books and being, being on your own. Some people do very well, but I feel like it's really important to take the time to seek out uh, other people, even though if it's financially difficult, sure. if you are an ambitious person, and I was, shadowing is so is, important. Yeah. Is you, can, you can go out and see that person. So I met Jim Hurlbut. Jim initially was frustrated, I think, because I kind of, at that point, in some ways, I was a better whip maker than Jim was. Um, and definitely when we made whip side by side, I finished my stock whip and there were certain things I wasn't happy about with about it and I knew I could go home and fix this thing and fix that thing. Mm -hmm. And the stock whip he made was about as good. Yeah. And then he hears me complaining about what I made. We spent four intensive days together uh, making uh, se several things, a couple handles and uh, a whole kangaroo hide whip. And I'm complaining about it. And he's like, shut up, stop complaining. <laughs> right. And... Uh, so I, I did that, and that was about 2003, and then I finished my last year of college, and then started to making whips full-time, Yeah. because I didn't know you could make a living whip cracking. Yeah. I've heard new people playing harmonica. Some, like a, make a yeah, some, <laughs> some people can. Some people yeah. can. I, I think it's, it's tough. Like, um, I say, like, even when I was doing it full-time, I didn't do very well, mainly because I, only, I would like, wake up at 10. I'd work from 11 to 1 sometimes, or from some from 10 to 1. I would have lunch. I'd take a nap. I might get up, work another hour, and then I'd want to go crack whips or play the harmonica or mm -hmm. whatever. So I was really only working on stuff yeah. four hours a day. If I put in six hours a day of working on braiding, it was terrible. So I didn't put in enough hours, really, to make it. Now, there is the case for, what do they say, that in the United States we're afflicted with affluenza. You got to work. You got to make the money to buy the stuff. Yeah. To be affluent, and you don't have to do that. So I obviously I wasn't getting affluent doing what I was mm -hmm. doing, mm -hmm. but I was learning more whip cracking and then doing exercising the performance bug by uh, playing the harmonica at night or doing like community theater, and then and then I was kind of getting burnt out on the whip making thing. So it was lucky for me, and I was practicing whip cracking more that finally a renaissance fair opened by my house and then mm -hmm. I was able to start performing there. And I still made whips and was taking orders for those first couple years because I didn't have a full year of doing renaissance fairs yet, so I would make whips. But at least it gave me enough when I started in 2006 that I could then go to Australia, have enough money to go there mm -hmm. and hang out with, with Chris Barr and like make whips on his porch yeah. and stuff. Backing up just a, a little bit, there's sure. that video where you describe, you know, you're, you're done with college, but you, you were faced with that decision, you know, and I remember you saying in the video, I don't want to put on a suit and tie every day and, and go into an office. And I just think that's that's such an awesome thing. You said, what can I do? Whip making. I love this. I'm going to make it work. I think that's such a bold thing to do. It's, you know, it's brave. Not a lot of people have what it takes to do that and say, this is what I want. I don't want to do, I don't want to fit into this cookie cutter mm -hmm. society and just and do that. And uh, I, I think that's pretty awesome that you. That you I can expand work. on that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, a couple things that more more about it. And so I went to school for math and physics, and the idea would be is that I would go on to do engineering. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't know what kind of engineer I wanted to be. Sure. So I think at some point, I think it was at the end of my fourth year, and I decide I decided to take an, a fifth year to figure out what the heck I want to do because I wasn't ready to graduate. I could have graduated in four mm -hmm. with a math major. 
is that we had to try to get an internship related to engineering. But it turns out, as much as I could talk about engineering, I'm not actually interested in, in mm -hmm. engineering. The things right. I was doing naturally right. drawn to that I learned a lot about were uh, whip making, whips, and playing the harmonica. Uh -huh. So I did that a lot. So when it comes to engineering, if I would have put all the energy I'd put into whips into actually learning real engineering type stuff, like maybe tearing apart radios, rebuilding radios, mm -hmm. or reworking on my own car, that kind of thing, that would have more related to, engin to engineering. So anyway, I tried to apply for an engineering internship that summer, and I couldn't get that, and I did a terrible interview. Couldn't get that. I think that summer I also tried to get a job at Menards, working in their lumber yard, and I couldn't get that. And I also tried, um, I think, getting a job at like a local sort of coffee sandwich house. And they weren't hiring for the summer because like, it's a university town in Eau Claire. We're not busy for the summer. So I didn't get that job. So basically, I got three no's there. And I was like, well, screw these guys. I know how to make whips. If I need some money, I'm just mm -hmm. going to make them. I think I did that. I Because I got back from being an exchange student that, that fourth year, and it's kind of broke. So I was like... Um, so I did make a few whips, and then I got all these like no's of getting a job. I'm like, well, I'm just gonna make whips and keep selling them on mm -hmm. this eBay thing. Yeah. And that was more like, and that was kind of the impetus. That was about the time I went made plans to go see Jim Hurl. But I was like, oh, well, I'm selling these things. I want to go invest some time in it and really bump up my game mm -hmm. with whip making. So Jim really helped get me more straightened out on like patterns uh -huh. and uh, whip designs and show me some different knots and stuff. Um, and then yeah, so that then I was. Just met Jim in 2003 and then did my last year and kind of by then I was already getting a website set up and uh, and was making whips and selling them on eBay. Not making a lot of money, mm -hmm. but it was okay. And then my graduation came and I graduated a double major in math and physics. I didn't actually go to the graduation ceremony. I went mm -hmm. to a little Western arts convention in Minnesota, kind of similar to the one we'll go to tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I was like, if I can get enough whip orders, I'm just going to do this whip thing. That's and yeah, awesome. and I got a bunch of whip orders there, and and I was sort of off to the races. But thinking about making, I say making a living as a whip maker, which maybe not too many people think about, mm -hmm. is that I was initially just trying to make kangaroo hide whips. Like I had a bull whip design, and I had a stock whip design, and I made some cow hide whips, and I was really tough. I think make it like my wife Dakota now does very well like making good money, making nylon whips, selling them at reasonable prices. So I was basically not working enough. I had too high end of a product, wasn't putting enough time in. So I wasn't making um, that much money. Mm -hmm. but, but I was doing essentially at that time what I wanted to do. Yeah. I think that basically answers your question. It sounds cooler of like, I'm not going to put on a suit and a tie. Well, no one was asking me to actually put on a suit and tie. Can I right. talk a little bit about the, the first list? Like, you eventually made a, the Indiana budget, you know? Uh, and so, like, you, you told me once, when I asked you how many whips you made, you said, how many whips you made? Maybe five, six, seven hundred, or you made a few hundred, or probably a thousand. Yeah. Or, all right, so, like, when you first started making a lot of those whips, uh, what, is there anything, like, well, the most things I sold originally when you started was just, like, Indiana Jones whips, or, like, what was it that, you know, you're, what, when you were doing it full-time, what was more of the style whip you made? Probably I sold the most Indiana budget bull whips. It's a good name. It's a shame I didn't keep the product going. Um, but uh, for those that don't know, is that at, at one point 
I think when I before fate when I started it was 2004. I was basically my sole income was making whips from 2004 to about 2006. So I started Renaissance fairs, and then 2006 to 2008 or about 2010ish, I was still actively taking orders. And then I think by like 2010, then I just shut everything off, and I was really making a good living doing performing. Mm. So over those couple years, Facebook hadn't really taken off yet. So there was this website called Indie Gear. Oh, and had had a Club Obi Wan yeah. forum forum, and they had where people could talk about gear, Indiana Jones related gear. And that was the main place that was active that I would go to to see online posts about whips. So I could see that there was a need for people like I want like I want an Indiana Jones whip to put on my costume for Halloween, or I want to buy a whip, but I don't want to spend seven hundred dollars yeah, or five hundred dollars. Yeah. So I thought, oh, there's uh, a market here for something lower dollar. And I forget what year I actually cranked it out, but I remember part of the reason I did it, and the first one, is that I had some community theater show I was doing, and they wanted a cheaper whip to use. So I thought of the cheapest, quickest thing I could throw together out of leather was um, take some duct tape and taper it, pour some lead shot on it, mm-hmm. make a huge, well, you, I don't say huge, but like four foot long le- uh, lead triangle, and then round it, tape it with a lot of tape to a spike, and then I think I put a bolster over that, and then I put a four-strand overlay over that. It was very heavy. Hmm. But it cracked fine. It worked for the show. And I thought, ah, if I could just make this look like an Indiana Jones whip and go great. So I made a few like that with lead inside them, and they were really heavy. Yeah. And then I switched to um, just a le- leather core and then uh, that was about four foot, and then tied on some kangaroo hide scrap in the transition area and bound that. Mm-hmm. And then a bolster and then the four-strand overlay. I sold a bunch of them, but the hard part with making them, which made it really frustrating, is that Indiana Jones cosplayers want something that looks exactly the color of what you think Indiana Jones bullet mm, should right. be. Yeah. And the challenging part of buying cowhide. Yeah. So when you say when the challenging part of buying cowhide is that it's made as a fashion industry material. And I've learned this now that companies will order a whole ton of I would say tons of one specific material for what they are making this season. Mm-hmm. And then what's available to the average or the small consumer like me is just whatever they didn't buy or the mm. little extra ones. So that means if I go to my cowhide dealer, sometimes I could get some amazing cowhide, just the right color. Yeah. But then other times I'd be like, I need this kind of thing. And they're like, the closest thing we have is something red. And I'm like, mm-hmm. ah. So some of the Indiana budget whips I made were basically red, like a dark, dark red. I think that's what I got. I think it was red or near red, one that I bought the other day. So it's frustrating to me, frustrating to the customers. And so it's nice now. uh, And and also at that time, like there's always the droughts going on every now and then in Australia. So when I was making whips, there was droughts going on and uh, we weren't getting good hides over here. So I was like, man, these hard to make these kangaroo hide whips, like it's got scars in them and Mm-hmm. Can't get the right color of the cowhide. So now that I make whips out of nylon, when I feel like it, it's nice that it's a more reliable oh, yeah. mate- material. So many color options, yeah. Right. For sure. Yeah. But yeah, I was looking in the market and trying to, with Indiana Budget, trying to find a need. I, when I started making whips, because I sold my first one in like 1992, winter of 1992, mm. I think. And then, um, and then I sold a couple more in the summer of 93. And I remember I had like an eight foot cow, twelve plat cow I bull whip and a ten footer, and uh, I remember selling those in 1993. And then when I was doing those, I kept track of what I, well, exactly what I sold up to about 180 whips. 
Wow. And then and then I just stopped caring. And this was all before like I was fifteen. Wow. So I've been know that you were making them that early. I didn't know. Oh yeah. So I I had been doing it a while. It's just that the, when I was fifteen, I started playing the harmonica, and that became more my main hobby. Yeah. And and I was, there's pictures of me like with whips like off and on uh, after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't like my main thing. I was like, I want to be a musician. Yeah. So then you know YouTube comes into the picture and. By then, you know, you're an established wit maker, and there was a, you know, classic video of you, I think it has over a million views now, The Many Ways to Crack a Whip. It took 10 years to get a million views. (laughs) You're standing in that snowy field, and and that's that's the video that, that did it for so many people, like that was... That was one of the huge videos that inspired me. I know, you know, Steve, you said the same thing. Yeah, video. Yeah. Uh, you know. That, that should, well, I was already ready to find a, a whip and start cracking it. But then I just thought, you know, I'll check YouTube and I'm sure there'll be something. And that was the video yeah. I saw and I'm like, oh, I can do that. He explained yes. it so well that so it was like, oh, I can figure that out. Like, yeah. That's great. That's perfect. That's just what I needed. Yeah, it was such a straightforward video. Like, what was your intention when you made that? Did you... Were you were you trying to just get more people into it? Did you know that it would have that big of an effect on people to get them into whips and whip making and cracking in general? Or well, I think that all I can say basically about it is that so I'm a performer mm-hmm. because I'm a middle child, and middle child's children always want attention. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to say basically probably even now anything, and they also want, you want attention and you want approval. So anything now yeah. that I'll post on YouTube, it's probably because I want attention and approval. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the basic crux of it, I would say. And also, yeah. also, there's I mean, you can spin it another way where I've heard this thing where there's the trifecta of being a people pleaser is yeah. being a Midwesterner, being a, a Cancer, which means like being born in July, which I was, and then being a middle child. So I'm all three. So there's, yeah. all, there's also that. In the middle that. of the country, middle of the yeah. children, middle of the... Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm all through. So there's also that. So you want to do things like, oh, you liked what I did. Well, that's great. That's what I want to do. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, and I don't know why I guess really thought, oh, this instructive stuff should be on YouTube. I just knew that I wanted to put some whip cracking on YouTube because mm-hmm. I knew it was a thing. And I was like, this seems like a good thing. I yeah. should put it on there. I think it might help with you uh, as far as if you, you people are like, well, I want to do a show. What do you do? I'm like, well, just check this video. Or is there any... Maybe also sites like that where you're trying to see it might be easier to to get shows. I really don't. I really don't. I'm trying to think like why did I think like oh let's post instructive stuff on on YouTube. I'm not really sure what made me say like oh this should happen. I mean, yeah. and the kind of how it happens now, and I don't know. I can't say it really happened with me then. Is uh, you look at people like uh, Rusty De- Rusty DJ Rusty De Jesus in Seattle, uh, Snapdragons mm-hmm. and or April Choi, is yeah. that you have people that are teachers, and Blake's done this too, you have people that are teaching other people, mm-hmm. and like, so you teach a person, and then you realize like, oh, this maybe this lesson wasn't quite enough, or you need a review video, yeah. so these teachers are then making review videos or lesson videos for their students, or for people like April's been teaching at uh, conve- um, Flow Arts conventions and stuff, mm-hmm. so it's for the people that are, might think about coming to your convention, or did come to your convention, sure. yeah. and I wasn't doing any of that, Mm-hmm. when I started posting those videos. But I did find, for whatever reason, they were easy videos to make initially. And that's why I don't post as much anymore because I feel like the standard of YouTube has gotten a lot higher. Mm-hmm. But when I was making those videos, so I just did the one of like, here's a bunch of different ways to crack a whip. And then 
and then basically did each one individually, made a video for each one. Mm -hmm. But it was a very easy formula for me, like, well, I'm just going to go outside, wearing basically whatever I'm wearing, trying mm -hmm. to find a decent background, and uh, be like, here's basically how you do it. Here's me a little bit slower. Here's the, the mechanics. Here's what people usually do wrong. Here it is again. Hope you like the video. Yeah. And so it's a very easy format to get. Just go out, it's one take. I mean, I might do several takes on some stuff, but generally get it down in, in two or three takes. Not like, there's not a lot of editing. Also, sure. it's just one continuous yeah, shot. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I like about you know the, some of your first videos especially. They were just so raw, you know what I mean? There's one, you got the 10-foot Morgan, I think it was, your whistling kill bill. And you're cutting dandelions. This is awesome. Yeah. Jacket whip in that. Was it? Yeah. No, it was a Morgan. Was it? Yeah. yeah. No, I think the, the jacket one, I think it was in that Dixie cup trick. That's the one you're talking about. I think. Right? No, this one, I'm or cutting. This you were out in the field and you got I'm cutting skin. dandelions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it Twisted Nerve? Yep. Yep. And then yeah, I remember that. Right at the end. You, <laughs> you do whistle that in the Dixie Cup video too, though. Oh, probably. I remember with the Dixie Cup oh, video. I'm telling you for sure. You're it? It's like it's pulled up right now. <laughs> <laughs> with the Di Dixie Cup video, I think I remember that. That was a routine I was working on doing at the Renaissance Fair. And it's nice that I posted it because I did it so long, and I know I wrote material for it, that I'll forget it, and I can go back to the video like, oh, that's what I said. Because there's a whole spiel about mathematics and yeah, uh, topology, I think is what is a branch of math, yeah. and I go through it, um, and I, it's funny, I didn't actually learn about it when I was a math major, but I knew that there was this thing called this, and that I could apply it to this trick, mm -hmm. and, and also the same thing with my physics, is that I've got a bit about explaining why I whip cracks in my show, hmm. and, and, I've got, and I'll rattle off about five physics formulas, or four or five physics formulas really fast mm -hmm. and then make a joke out of it. But I only re remember them because I didn't actually remember them. I had to look them back up on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. What they say sometimes about going to college is that you won't always remember the thing, but you will remember where you got to go to look it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So talking more about, you know, the performance, you know, the, 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 rena the performance aspect of, of whips, is that, would you say that's what you enjoy most about it all? Do you like performing more than you like making whips? Do you is that is that your favorite thing? Would you say? I, I would I would say so. Definitely, performing is something that I can do enough of to make a much better living than mm -hmm. I could ever do whips. Mm -hmm. I couldn't enjoy making enough whips to make a good living. Some people can, mm -hmm. they crank them out. I I mostly enjoy whip making the most when I know that there's some specific trick that could, I could do easier if I had a better whip for it. Mm -hmm. And then I start brainstorming, what could I make? And then I'll make something, I'll be like, yes, this is it, or no, this is not it. And if it's not it, then right away, I can turn around and crank out a second whip as faster than I ever could. Mm -hmm. If someone was just like, can you just make me an Indiana Jones bull whip? And if I don't know that guy, I'm really gonna drag my feet. Mm -hmm. So for me, real inspiration now is whip for whip making is that it can make tricks easier. Or can make the show easier, mm -hmm. and then and then I'll crank, then I can crank stuff out pretty fast. Sure, or, or make a break a record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which yeah. we'll get into here in a moment for sure. I just want to briefly talk about um, nylon versus kangaroo hide. Um, which one do you prefer? I know you said now you you work mostly with with uh, with nylon and, and dacron, but is there do you prefer one over the other? I mean, is one more convenient than the other to you? 
Oh, definitely mm -hmm. nylon yeah. is more convenient than yeah. kangaroo leather. Yeah. I, I own a lot of kangaroo whips, and uh, I'm kind of seems like I'm buying them all the time. Yeah. Mainly because I'm a performer. Uh, whips that I buy and put in my collection are always a tax write-off, mm -hmm. and so I'll crack them a little bit. But they're always a tax write-off, and I enjoy seeing work from other whip makers, and some I buy from regularly. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really use those in my show because. Oh, excuse me, um, a kangaroo hide whip is just going to be so much more upkeep. Mm -hmm. I think, like, I'm going to worry about, okay, don't get it wet, or right, keep it out of the dirt, mm -hmm. and um, always check the fall, always, and keep it greased so you don't right. blow a cracker. Because right. that is one thing that I know about performing, and I think I learned it from going to Annie Oakley days, is that um, with the leather, if you're cracking whips around people and they're kind of close, and if you bust a fall, like, if your cracker is kind of light, but you bust off a chunk of fall with it, so you got mm -hmm. this little knot, You've basically got a little projectile, mm, like a pellet. Yep. It's boom, oh, flying, and you can really nail people in the audience. Yeah. So I found that souvenir. Well, <laughs> yeah, you get a souvenir cracker and yeah. a souvenir blood blister. Right. <laughs> is that with nylon? It's easier for me to look at it. I mean, sometimes you can look at leather and know when it's going to fail, and you and you trim it down to replace the fall. With nylon, for me, I think it's easier to know when it's going to fail. Will this cracker stay on? In particular, the little tip I would say is I always, with my nylon falls, I always make sure the end of it is always fused mm -hmm. and it's got a little bump on it. And I can tell once I keep, if I keep fusing it back, if it starts charring and turning black and it won't melt anymore, then this is degraded past the point of usability and I need a new fall on it or need a new whip. Yeah. So definitely, yeah, nylon. I don't have to worry about getting it wet. I don't have to worry about greasing it. I don't feel bad if it gets trashed. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper to replace. Yep. Whereas for me, if I have a nice set of kangaroo hide whips, and if they start looking scuzzy, I'm going to feel bad. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to want to make sure they're greased every night. Yeah. And I, I definitely would baby them more. Even today, we were doing some whip cracking, and I have a set of white whips I just got from Glenn Denholm that are mm -hmm. white kangaroo hide. And I got them, and, and Glenn's work is very solid. It's not like Peter Thorndike stuff, but it's nice. And even we were cracking a little bit, and then I looked at it and like, oh, I, my thumb got mm -hmm. this handle a little. Today, yeah. Like I'm sad. Yeah. Now these yeah. were so nice and bright and yeah. white, and I don't yeah. feel that sadness when I do a nylon whip because I know for me, a nylon whip that's just a whip for doing shows. It's for work. It's going to be used and worn out, and put in a bin, or I'll s sell them off when I don't want to use them in my show anymore, and someone can start on the worn out ones. Yeah. But there's no sentimental value for me really attached to a nylon whip versus the, the kangaroo hide one. So it makes it yeah. easier for me to want to trash them in a, using them in a show. Yeah, it's, it's, it's merely a tool. tool for nylon. They were Adam's first I got from them. I, I love those things. Yeah, I hear you. Mine as well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those, those mean something. Yeah. You know, now had I made that nylon whip, I, I had <laughs> nylon whips that I made. You know what I mean? They don't come out. They don't get used. Yeah, Nobody you're, sees you're, those. Yeah, your first set, I have loaned to people. Like, I've mailed those to at least five other people across the country. I've loaned them to Nick. Yeah. I've sent it to people that they, they would take an order, like, I know what I want. I'm going to stock up. I know these guys. I'm like, I'll tell you what. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to send you a set of nylon stock whips, and you crack them and cough me. I've done it so much. Those, those yeah. whips have actually trained at least six or seven people. Wow. Are you referring them. to the, the, the black and, the black black and, and whites originally? Oh, black and whites. Yes, yes. I remember those. The turquoise ended up Leo. Okay. Leo yeah, Maxwell. Yeah. That's the, right. The Wonder Kid. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Leo, Leo trashed those. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one thing, like, so why Blake would talk about stock whips that I make is 
one thing. So I've I'm spent all this time learning two-handed routines that were performed by like in Australian competitions, mm-hmm. and that I run into the problem of like when I did start doing shows, I had a pair of nice four-foot kangaroo ride stock whips that these are the whips I've got to that'll do these tricks. And then I would say, like, well, I still want to do these tricks, but I want to do it with nylon. Mm-hmm. Or say, like, learning four corners tricks, I decided I'm using a pair of Simon Martin Whipple Lace Whips, but I'm like, I want something better, that I make some material <coughs> that I find is better, because there's so many synthetic materials out there. Mm-hmm. So I felt like there should be something better to do this that's in synthetic. I'm not going to try to make it out of kangaroo leather. Mm. World records. Yeah. Um, you're... You know, you're doing Renaissance shows, you know, you're making whips, maybe not as much anymore because you're doing the shows more. When did you decide that you wanted to start, you know, looking into breaking some world records with whips? When did you start researching, well, which records have been broken? When? Talk a little bit about that. Well, that that's, that's a good, easy question. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I would have started, I started in 2005 at the Spirit of the West Festival in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. So Robert Dante came out, I think I went out there in 2004, and Robert Dante came out, and Robert Dante, at that point, was doing the most bullwhip cracks in a record, well, sorry, most bullwhip cracks in a minute record, mm-hmm. and he was going back and forth with Chris Camp, and it was like, oh, it's like, like 201, ooh, now it's 208, now 212, 214, so he came out, and I was one of his witnesses, and I think he barely got the record, he, he squeaked, he beat it by two, or mm. something, and then... And you could tell, like, maybe he's, I'm, I'm, if I want attention for this record, like, maybe doing it over again isn't the best way to do it. So the next year, 2005, Dante came out to the Spirit of the West Festival and said, all right, everybody, we're going to make a competition for most bullwhip cracks in a minute. Mm-hmm. And anyone that comes out, if you do it, it'll be a prize, and you're going to get the record. So at first I thought, that's a bunch of hooey. Who really cares? Mm-hmm. And some friends of mine said, no, we think you can do it. You should try it. So I made a whip for it. It had a wood handle foundation. And it was, I made it out of some cowhide from South America that I got from um, Bernardo del Carpio. Mm-hmm. And in, in part because it's warmer there, close to the equator, the cattle will have thinner skin. So it helps the grain be a little bit better, apparently. So I so I made it up, made it just had a six foot cowhide whip. I was like no frills. I just threw it together. I knew it was going to do the job, and I did oh. some training, and I did really well. I got like two hundred sixty one cracks, nice. and not even switching arms, just one arm, and 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 did it. So I won the competition, and I thought that would be made into a record mm-hmm. because it's certainly the previous record before that was two hundred twenty two. Yeah. So I'm like I blew it away, yeah, and it really made me feel like man, I can get. It. I could do this stuff, I guess. So at that sort of wet, that initial experience, even though I didn't get the record, because uh, Robert, uh, whatever, had problems, something completely. Would you me. say that that rub that you didn't get the record fueled you to get the record? Was that a fact? You have to, like, no, no, it record? wasn't so much. It's, like, it's, it's not. I mean, I was disappointed that the however Robert, if he did or didn't try to do the paperwork, that it didn't work out. I mean, that was disappointing. It's not even so much a rub with that. It's more that you know when you do something. Sometimes you see, you go through experience and you feel like you get your confidence up and you're like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And yeah. like for harmonica, sometimes people think of the blues harmonica player, uh, Jimmy Reed, who's a very basic harmonica player, but uh, he's still t- very talented in phrasing and stuff. Anyway, people listen to him and they'll be like, yeah, I can do that. So for me, doing that record, even though I didn't actually get it, going through the experience made me feel like, yeah, I can do that. But at the time, also, there were only three records for whip cracking. There was 
um, longest whip ever cracked, most bull whip cracks in a minute, and then a more recent record created by Andrew Thomas, an Australian whip cracker, most Australian stock whip cracks in a minute. So there's only three. Mm -hmm. So it was very easy for me at that point to say, like, I'm going to try to get all three. Mm -hmm. And so I, so then I did. So I, the next record I did in the next year, that was 2005, so in 2006, then I did the long whip record and most stock whip cracks in a minute. And I think it was like the winner of that next year in 2007 that I got the, finally did the most bull whip cracks in a minute. Hmm. And a fun story about the most bull whip cracks in a minute. So the whip I made out of cowhide to do 261 whip cracks mm -hmm. worked great. And I ended up selling it to a friend of mine. But Paul Nolan looked at it, and Paul was like, no, nah, man, if you're going to build a whip for the record, like, you've got to make it nice. And I make it nice <laughs> because it's for the record. So then when I went to go get the record the next time, I hadn't met Chris Barr, but I'd been in touch with Chris Barr and really improved my um, kangaroo hide whip making skills. So I made a very pretty 16 plat whip. Todd Rex really likes it. It has a very thick handle because there are certain handle measurements you're supposed to meet mm -hmm. with the whip. And so I made it. And I managed to squeak by and get the record. I really wanted to get 261, but I think the whip was stiffer, it was heavier, mm -hmm. and all I could get was, um, it did look nicer, but all I could get was like 253, I think. So I was very disappointed. Yeah. And, uh, but I had what Paul said, it should be pretty. <laughs> That's but most of the time, no, with making whips for records, I'm like, this is a tool to do one thing. It doesn't matter if it looks pretty, right, right. and it doesn't matter if it lasts that much longer beyond the record. Yeah. You're probably not going to hang it up in a case. I mean, you can have different whips and different records. Yeah. I mean, I can have a shine to it. No. The, the only... It gets you across the river, leave the boat, you know. Yeah. The only whip I've made that I know that went into a shadow box, there was a set of whips um, for most whip cracks in a minute with two whips. I think... I think it was the last time I did it, and I got it. I did the 646, and then Simon Martin wanted to get those whips from me, so then I traded those to Simon Martin, and then he put them in a shadow box along with the Guinness certificate cool. in his place. And I think Simon was thinking, like, oh, Nathan Griggs isn't going to beat that. But I was like, I'm pretty sure Nathan is. But you can still have the whip, Simon. And then, yeah, it was like maybe four months after that, then cool. uh, Nathan Griggs got the record back. Yeah. But you got it back since then? No, no. Nathan's on top right now at six ninety-seven, I think. But now there's so many records. The thing about the explosion of it. So initially, when I started, there was three. Yeah. So it's very easy to say, I want to get all the Guinness records for whip cracking and be have one person hold them up. Very easy to say that. Sure. Like other things, people want to say. Anytime you start something, you feel like you're getting good at it. I want to be the best in the world, and that is a better lifestyle and goal than it is a destination. Mm -hmm. But doing the Guinness record thing, at least it is very, you can qualify it and say like, do you have the record? Yes, it was this number. Here's the certificate. Mm -hmm. Saying like you're the best whip cracker in the world. Like, well, there's this thing and this thing. Can you do that? Yeah. There's this other thing this other guy does. Can you do that? Oh, no, I can't. Then you're not the best. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a much harder thing to do. But you could be like, <laughs> work on, you can try to work on that if you feel like it. Yeah. But anyway, so I did those three and now they've really expanded and, um, at, at one point, I think Guinness was more conservative about how many records they would want to create. Right. And, um, and they weren't, weren't like letting all comers come up and like, let's create this other silly, stupid record here. Yeah. And now it seems that they're creating a lot more, like um, some of the more recent ones that I thought were interesting. Well, in interesting that, so first I'll say interesting because they made it even a record. Like the one we did today, mm -hmm. uh, most yep. eggs broken with a whip in 30 seconds that's yeah. a weird time frame 
I, initially I thought it's kind of a strange like eggs and with the whip but like we saw it today and we saw the video like eggs exploding it's very visual and they did go all over the place it's a big yeah. mess so I can understand some with some records part of the importance of them is does it look good on TV like if I went on TV and yeah. did that record would it make good TV would it look good in slow-mo mm -hmm. certainly the egg one would look very good in slow motion because you yeah. capture that egg splattering I think it's a little silly. I know it was created for a British variety artist, and I think he must have been doing other records, and they were like, what else can you do? Why well, can sort of crack a whip? Yeah. Well, so he created this egg-whipping one in 30 seconds, and then also most newspapers cut in half in a minute with a whip. So this one guy, Johnny something, I forget what his name yeah. is. Yeah, so there's two world records today. That's that's pretty awesome. So how many do you have total now after after today's? Well, so once the I still have a, to submit all the paperwork. Uh, I have some paperwork I have to write up, and I have to upload it all to the Guinness website, mm -hmm. and then I'll pay them some money to uh, and, uh, go over and uh, the documentation sooner than they normally would. Sometimes it can take six months to a year mm -hmm. to hear back, but uh, if you pay them money, I can hear back in a week. So yeah. I'm gonna do that, and then I will have set twenty seven records wow so how that and then the math is weird on that are for me with the, the guinness records and um i never really talked to anybody else that keeps had had that many because i remember oh i went on a guinness show in china and some guy told me i have set 11 guinness world records and i was like that's amazing that's ridiculous i've never i've got two how did you do so many I think it was the first international trip I had for a Guinness record, and that was putting out candles with a whip, and I met mm. some other people. And now that I've done 25, part of it is just I've been doing it so long. I've been doing a couple a year mm -hmm. since 2006 when, when I started because mm. another performer told me, well, it's a good way to promote yourself. You just keep doing a couple a year as long as you can do it. And in some ways it helps now that there are more records because some of them are kind of low-hanging fruit. Like you can say, world record. Do I... I feel like with what we did today, like, would I put at the top of the list of, like, world records I have done? I'd be like, mm -hmm. no, I've done stuff that I know was harder and took more training sure. and took more talent and took more luck. Yeah. Um, these were, these were kind of low-hanging fruit. Like, the most, the other one we did was most balloons popped in a minute with a whip. Mm -hmm. And that is a record that I wrote to Guinness and said, I think this should be a record. You're putting out all these other records. Yeah, yeah. I pop balloons a lot. It's a very classic whip target. Mm -hmm. um, it looks good. It's a nice, big, colorful display. I could see doing that in a show, a setting of like, can he go? Can he pop all those balloons? It's very easy to see when mm -hmm. the balloon pops. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and it looks great. So that's why you'd want to make it a record. It could look good on a show, look good on uh, TV. Maybe get you a TV gig someday. Yeah. And one thing we did find with that record is we didn't actually see how many balloons I could pop before we did it. We just knew that Guinness, when there's a new record, they will set a minimum. So that way someone can't like pop one balloon like it's a world record. Right, right. So there's a minimum of 30 and then we ended up doing 40 balloons popped but you can only pop a balloon one crack for one balloon. So yeah. um, two balloons went with one crack so that only counts as one. So we set up 40 but we can only count 39 and that was in like about 32 seconds I popped all of those. Yeah. So theoretically somebody could probably do 80. But it's kind of now, I can see other people more, there's so many records, some whipcrackers would just pick their battles and be like, this is my record and I'm going to defend it. You can't, there's so many of them now, mm. you can't run around defending them all. Right, right. Uh, an interesting thing also I mentioned about defending records, 
And this relates to Nathan Griggs and the changing of Guinness rules. So, uh, so I've, I've, uh, Nathan is the current holder for the long whip record. And I think he has it at about, I think it's, it's close to an even 100 meters, I think was his goal. It's, it's 300 some feet, about, about 330 feet. He's got like a big reel for that, doesn't he? Like a big old hose he, reel. He, he, yeah, he, he does to, to put yeah. it on there. So Nathan, um, let's see, who did it before? So I, I had it, um, uh, Chris King had it before me. He's a whip maker that lives in Archbold, Ohio, not super far from here. Mm-hmm. And he had it at 180 some feet, like 184 feet six inches, something like that. And then I did it. Um, I did 216 feet. I think is why initially we were shooting for 220, but I had to rebuild the whip a couple times to get it right. And I just made mine out of rope. Mm-hmm. Chris King he braided his out of nylon. I just made mine out of rope because there were no rules about what it had to be made out of. They're actually very simple. Initially, mm-hmm. the rules were let's see three things. The, uh, the whip has to be measured with a steel measuring tape. The measure, second, the measurement cannot include the handle. And third, one of the witnesses has to be at least 30 feet away from the cracker and hear it crack for it to count. So that's it. And that's hmm. that very easy. It doesn't say what it has to be made out of. It yeah, doesn't say yeah. no one can hold the cracker. And when I tried it, the only reason I had, I had someone hold the cracker, and this is a big controversy with Gary Brophy, who had the record before Chris King did it. Gary cracked his whip on his own. Um, he had, a, yeah, about a 140-foot whip. Um, so I had someone hold the cracker. I only did it because Joe Strain told me that Chris King had someone hold the cracker. So mm. I thought, that's just how you do it. You're right, right. I was like, I'm not, I'm not cheating here. I'm just doing what I thought is how everybody is supposed to do it. Yeah. And um, so Gary could be a little butthurt. And be like, ah, oh, don't hold the cracker. Like anytime anything about it comes up on Facebook, Gary's all over it. Yeah, he's the first one to mention it. Yeah, yeah. but um, so yeah, so I did that. So it was very easy. So it was three rules, and then and then April Choi did it at uh, I forget what April got. Like I think two twenty one something, mm-hmm. two something, and um, I don't know, maybe no, maybe it's two thirty something. But anyway, so a- April Choi beat my record, and then and I. Then April Choi actually gave me that whip. It was a fire whip that she had made. And then gave me that whip to say, like, oh, thanks for your, like, assistance, like, helping me be inspired to do this record. And I tried to give her some advice. So here's the whip. And then I got it. And I thought, like, and she told me this, that, oh, it'd be way easy to get the record back. You just add a little bit to my whip here and mm-hmm. you can get the record back. Like, yeah. I just wanted to, she just wanted to do it. She didn't want to hang on to the record forever. Mm-hmm. So I had it in my head. Oh, it be an easy record to get back. So I finally thought, like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I got the whip out. And it was too burned up and too frayed to actually use to train with to crack the thing. Mm-hmm. So I dug out my old, old, old rope whip, rebuilt the thing, and, and did 200 and... I'm pretty sure we did 238 feet. I think that's what we... We were trying to go about in increments of 10 mm. or something. I'm pretty sure that's, that's what I did. And then, and then Nathan then went basically way over that by almost like 90 feet. The classic, because it's basically that classic thing is like, when I did it at 216 feet, 65 meters, you could be like, that's about as long as a jumbo jet. But what everyone wants to hear is, that is as long as a football field. Right, right. That's, that's what you want. So that's, so Nathan went that long. And oh. so, so now, with Nathan's attempt, what some things Nathan did, um, which also helped make Nathan a, a YouTube star in the whip cracking world, is that he built a whip out of leather, and he made a four-part 
four or five part documentary series that he posted of him making the whip, the process of trying to make the world's longest whip. Because mm. you can see him on his journey trying to make this thing. And he put, you can tell watching the video, he put a heck of a lot of work into it. He had to have people helping him, a lot of money and materials, because the whole oh, thing's yeah. made out of leather. Yeah. Ridiculously, very kept it, really kept it uh, under his hat how long it was actually going to end up being. Because yeah. we all thought, like, maybe 260 feet. Yeah. So they could really surprise people by coming out 200 and, uh, or no, 330 feet. That's one of those important business ideas is that you want to over, um, under promise and over deliver. Don't over, don't over promise and under deliver. No one likes that. Right. Mm -hmm. So you want to be like, hey, maybe I can do two. He did four. Oh my God. <laughs> Whatever. Just a basic number example. But anyway, yeah. so, so here we have, so Nathan, he put all this work. I built my whip out of rope. Mm -hmm. Very easy, like a trip to Fireman Fleet or hardware store and about an hour of splicing stuff together and I got my whip. Nathan had spent like, I don't know how much time, how much money, hmm. a lot of time and money making him. Yeah. So there was that. But also, I think probably because of Gary Brophy, I don't know, I don't really write to Nathan a whole lot. Every now and then I'll, I'll write to him. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe because of Gary Brophy, Nathan was like, okay, I have to figure out a way to crack this whip without someone holding the cracker. Mm-hmm. And because I think for Gary, that was a big deal. And also, I think one other thing about how I held the cracker, and this would be better explained in a video, but if you, there's video of it the last time I did it, you'll notice that a very precise loop has to travel down the whip, and it has to be very in line with itself, but not so in line with itself that it rubs on itself and collapses. So a loop has to be perfectly in line with itself once it gets to the person that's holding it, and they have to let go at just the right time for it to crack. You can't just have someone hold it, throw any old loop down it, mm -hmm. and have the thing crack. We found it took a lot of, t actually about a week or more wow. of experimenting, like just going out about each day or every other day, mm -hmm. experimenting on the hill, trying to figure out how to get this 238-foot whip to crack. Yeah. So I don't think that that method of, of rolling a precise loop down it, having someone hold the cracker and letting go at the right time, was going to work for a longer whip. And it was actually April Choi that figured out that, oh, you don't have to have someone hold the end of the cracker. Mm -hmm. What you do is you take, you have someone hold like part of the braiding and then you've got a whole other piece of the whip just trailing out. So the big loop would come down the, the, the main body of the whip and you have maybe like 10, I don't know, five, 10 feet, whatever, mm -hmm. maybe five feet, I guess, just hanging out the other side. So they're just, hold, they're just pinching a little sort of bite, I guess, or the whip's doubled back hmm. and they're pinching part of it. And then the loop will travel down, and I guess now if, you, if that whip just pulls out, it's enough to flop around the five-foot part that you had hanging out the other side of your hand hmm. to get that to crack. So what Nathan did, if you watch the video of him cracking his whip, there's a, it's a grassy field, but there's a smooth sheet of white plastic. Mm -hmm. And that the whip was made, was made this little hairpin thing. So I have like lay the whole whip out and then double back about five feet of it. And like you put a rock or a stick or something. We don't know exactly. Yeah. But something to put some tension on it. So he can roll. Now he can roll any old loop down the thing and then run backwards with the handle. And then because it's doubled back at the end, once the loop gets there, the whip pulls out from whatever stick or rock is holding it. Mm. And then it cracks. So what I want to say is that basically Nathan came up with um, another gimmick, basically way to crack the whip. It's, not, it's still not cracked how you would think. A whip should be cracked, mm -hmm. but it is cracked without another, without two people holding onto the whip. Yeah, it's yeah. probably an important fact. So I'm trying yeah. to think of how they changed the rules now, because now that Nathan did that, Guinness 
Probably in part because of Nathan, probably in part because I think Robert Dante wrote to Guinness. Guinness changed the rules to protect Nathan's record. Hmm. So I couldn't go, I can't now go make a rope whip, I think, and beat Nathan's record. Like, I think they did put a rule that, it's like six rules now. So I brought the rules up. I guess there's not as big of a scoop reading these rules as I remembered. So some of the things that did change from when I originally did it in 2006 from when I did it 10 years later in 2016, is that uh, Guinness changed the rules about something that is a largest item by size, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Um, one rule, it says, the item must be made to commercial or professional standards. That's sort of related to, we're making the world's largest pizza, but we're not going <laughs> to use dough, and we're not going to use real pepperoni. <laughs> we're going to use some cardboard, and we'll cut out some red felt. So you would think, like, world's largest pizza it should you should be able to eat it right yeah so i think that's the same thing they want to do with the world's largest whip yeah and and really i think with some guinness records it depends on who you get that's looking over your material because mm -hmm. i've determined when you submit stuff online it goes to somebody that has to look at it for sure and sometimes they're helpful and i think sometimes they're not yeah so the other major rule that they changed that i got in trouble with and i had to do it again to make it happen as it says, the item must be measured by a qualified surveyor in the presence of two independent witnesses. It's not enough to just measure it with a steel measuring tape. You so we had to have a surveyor come out and with a GPS system and like, here's the one end, here's the other end. We also had a tape wow. measure. Yeah. yeah, and he has to have, like, we have to submit his certificate saying I'm a certified surveyor wow. and then his report and pay for his report huh. uh, for measuring the whip. So what I really thought was the crux, and I thought this is in the rules, but it's not. But I know April Choi, uh, I think her whip, she built a whip that's 360 feet. Mm -hmm. And I think she was trying to get this record back. And she didn't braid the whole thing. She basically made it like an instant whip with like tape mm -hmm. and, and rope on the inside, but did braid like, braid like the last 20 feet. Yeah. It's still no small thing to make what she made. Yeah. And I think she told me that she's tried to submit for that record but then whoever was examining her evidence said, no, you can't have somebody hold the cracker. Hmm. And, and that's what happened. And I thought that would be in the rules because I remember with this, like, there's something they changed that likes protecting Nathan's record. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's that holding the cracker thing. Yeah. But if you're aware of what Nathan did, yeah. then, you know, theoretically, you could beat his record. Huh. Interesting. I can't believe but, they had, like, somebody bring a... Yeah, like a GPS measuring unit. That, that's far beyond what I imagined that, that they would do, but you know, that's the way they work. But anyway, there's a lot of boring stuff I could talk about Guinness Records. I remember I went back and forth a lot with it with uh, Chris Camp, the whip guy, because Chris was doing um, a record for most bullwhip cracks in a minute, and we went back and forth a lot mm -hmm. on that. And, um, and I say, like, yeah, you can have for other, you can, between you and other people that are going for records, you can like have lots of fights and duke it out and you can have feuds and stuff. But like I told Aaron Bonk when he did his record, really the best you can hope for, one, you can hope to make friends, I guess, doing it and not, and just be a good sport and have good sportsmanship about it and try to help out other people doing records. So that's a good thing to do. I've tried to do that as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but the best you can hope for, I think, is doing a Guinness record is that you're picked up by some Guinness Records TV show. Mm -hmm. So I've been to, on the Italian Guinness TV show in 2009, we did most uh, drink cans, or most soda cans cut in half in three minutes. I was able to do that, so that was a paid trip to Milan. So I'd be like, hey man, I went to Milan. Um, 
And then I, I was flown to China f uh, five times, uh, both Be Beijing and, wow. and Shanghai, uh, to be on a Guinness TV show over there. Hmm. So not too many whip crackers can say, I got flown to China five times. Yeah, that's awesome. Man. Yeah. So the records I did there was um, mainly it was going back and first it was 2008. And then um, we were just doing the candle record. So I think we did that one actually like a total of about three times. Yeah, four, um, four times. And then the last time I went, they created a new record because we maxed out the candle record. Mm. We couldn't beat it on TV anymore. Wow. Um, yeah. and so I have it at 102, which I did at a Renaissance Fair. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't beat that on TV. So I go, oh, well, we're done doing this one. So they created another one, most beer bottles opened with a whip in a minute. So I was able to get it on the show. I opened 12. And I see just now uh, today when I was researching... For the records we did today, I found out that my record has been broken. I don't currently hold that record. The current record now is 18 bottles opened in a minute with a whip. Hmm. So held, so that's about one every three seconds held by, I think he's the Chinese guy that I competed against. There was three of us. Hmm. There was a guy that showed the show the trick to do it that got us the other two of us there. And the guy that I competed against with the candles and then me. And, and the originator of the trick didn't actually do very well on the show. But I, I see he, he must have decided to practice and got it back. So now I got to get off my butt and buy some Corona, I guess. <laughs> so uh, would you say that the world record aspect of, of your whole career in, in whips is kind of at the priority now? Would you say that's, that's your thing? That's what you're trying to do? No, no. The, the Guinness record thing is something I'm, I do when I'm bored with the other stuff that I really work on. Gotcha. Yeah. So probably with when it comes to what I actually work on and put most of my time in, I've been putting most of my time in actually trying to learn the staggered four corners. Mm -hmm. And and there's maybe like a handful of people that can do it in the world, most all of them in Australia. Mm. And it's, it's not very common. And the only reason I want to learn it is because my initial inspiration to get good at two-handed whip cracking was this video, Dueling Whips, by... Mike Murphy that he put out and it was footage of the 1999 Australian national titles hmm. of their national whip cracking competition. And the two, I think the two most innovative tricks in that video that you see the competitors do are the Philandi hoof beats, mm -hmm. which is a trick where you, you make the whip sound like the different gates of a horse, hmm. starting out slow with a walk and then up to a trot, a canter, and then a gallop called the Philandi hoof beats. And so that, there was that one. So I can do that one. And there's little kids that can do that one. Mm. And then the other main development they created then was the Staggered Four Corners, which is about, of all the tricks they do in that video, mm -hmm. Staggered Four Corners is the only one I can't do. Mm. So I felt like, ah, oh, it's like my white whale. Mm. Like I'm like Moby Dick. Jeez, yeah. I'm my white whale. Or I'm like Mr. Miyagi's brother in Karate Kid Part 2. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is my big piece of driftwood I'm trying to chop in half. So <laughs> so really, and, th and that's a whole another can of worms to talk about, but it's more what I'm working on is like, how do you take this move that I can't quite do? How do you figure out what do I work on? How do I make it feel like I keep, I'm still progressing? Mm -hmm. How do you not get disheartened? What do you do when you do get disheartened mm -hmm. or hit a wall? Yeah. And um, yeah. so then when I do hit the wall, basically then I go back to lasso spinning, which is the other thing I work on because... Mm. Almost as long, like for the last, I don't know, eight, eight years or so, like other performer friends would say, if I were you, I'd get better at the rope spinning. Because they would want to be better at the rope spinning. Mm -hmm. But I listen to that and like, all right, I guess I'll get better at the rope spinning. So yeah. I put, put a lot of time into that too. So I can kind of go back and forth between working on whips and I'll get burned out on that. 
and then I'll work on the lasso spinning. I'll work mm -hmm. on that for a while. And every now and then, like, oh, I should really crank out one of these Guinness records this year. Okay, I'll do that. Hmm. Like part of the reason of doing the records today is just that you do need two, for a timed record, you need two timers who have a timing experience or sports experience, and you need two independent witnesses, preferably that have some understanding of whips if you're doing a whip record. So mm -hmm. having Steve Townsend here as a whip maker, and you yourself as a whip maker, you guys make good witnesses. Blake Bruning has done martial arts training, and so has and his buddy Steve Gwynn, who's a sheriff and also a martial arts trainer. Mm -hmm. So it was made for a fact, oh, we have the right number of people mm. here to do a record, so we might as well crank out a couple of them. Yeah, that was fun. That was the first time I've ever, you know, been a witness at any, you know, for any world record, Guinness world record. I thought that was pretty awesome. But, Indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah. I only ever had to do it once. I was, yeah, I was a witness for uh, Robert Dante once. Yeah. Otherwise, cool. I've been the one doing it. But definitely for me, no, Guinness records aren't the main thing. It yeah. would be like the third thing that I think about sometimes. Mm -hmm. And also I find with the Guinness records... It's like I'll I'll sort of have a list of like what I think I should work on, mm -hmm. and sometimes I'll get more motivated or less motivated. Like the Jenga record, it was an interesting record, and I got more excuse me motivated to do it mm -hmm. when April's Choi was telling me that she was getting offers to do it on mm -hmm. like Russian TV, yeah, or something. You have that well, I gotta get. This. And I was like, oh well, I thought at the least. Sometimes these shows like to have competitors compete against each other. They don't yeah. just want one person coming out, seeing if they can do it. They want two people going yeah, head to that head. Yeah, makes it exciting. Which, and that's what China does. That makes for better TV. So I thought, at the least, I will set myself up as April's competitor mm -hmm. for this record. Yeah. And, and so that's basically what I did. But April already got, she got on James Corden. She got on the Today Show with it. I'm not sure that she's gotten anything, done anything else with that record as far as getting exposure or being on, on TV. Yeah, yeah. You obviously don't have to uh, disclose this, uh, but are there any uh, future world records that you are uh, that you have kind of floating around in, in the system that you're? Well, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Because um, some some records are just stupid high, and they'd be really it's so much work to beat. And some yeah. records maybe are lower or newer or more interesting to try. So, for example, like Nathan Griggs has a record at for most whip cracks in a minute with two whips at 697. Mm -hmm. And even when it was much lower at like 614, I didn't think I could beat it, but I beat it. And I'm and right now I'm in the mode of like, I don't think I can beat it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really thinking about that one because it's so ridiculously high now. But April did a record most um, whip cracks on a slack line in a minute. And that's the one I thought, oh, that'd be a good challenge to myself to learn how to balance on a slack line. Mm -hmm. And then that'd be something new to learn. Yeah. And then see if I can get that record. I think that'd be a good personal challenge for myself. Absolutely. And, but more, like, because there's so many records aren't there, out there now, and April's done a lot of them, mm -hmm. of the newer ones. Yeah. Um, the old one that she did was longest whip ever cracked, but she's done a lot of the newer ones. So they're kind of low-hanging fruit, so the numbers are kind of lower. Yeah, sure. So it's easier to do them. Yeah. Like... I think maybe it's, I don't know how long either the records we did here are going to hold. If anyone likes balloons, we didn't actually, we had a lot of extra time left. So definitely beating 39 balloons wouldn't be hard. Mm -hmm. um, the egg one, is, we found out, is just really difficult because it's so hard to find eggs that are longer yeah. than six centimeters. Yeah. Which oh, is weird. Yeah. So that's definitely a limiting factor. Like, I don't know how many eggs we got from local farmers around here in yeah. Indiana. Right. There were more than 100. Just to have 25 that we could use for the attempt. So that's definitely a factor. Yeah. But of course, when you tell someone, I got the record for most eggs busted with a whip in a minute, I think until you see an angle, sploosh, 
yeah. with a whip hit, you wouldn't be that impressed. But like, I mean, I had, oh, I was six and a half feet away or more from the eggs, and I was getting hit with yolk. Yeah, in well, the spring, so. I'll be releasing the video, you know, uh, shortly, you know, after this whole thing is established. But uh, got some 120 frames per second uh, footage. I think is gonna look pretty cool for sure. But uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, I know we all have to get up uh, early tomorrow, heading over to uh, the Annie Oakley Festival in Ohio. That's right, Annie Oakley Days. Yeah. And then Jerry Deere puts on a little Wild West convention there. He's been doing it for years. I used to go to this event. I think I, I want to say I went three years. I went 2005. No. Yeah, 2005, 6, and 7. So I went three years. And then I started working at the Renaissance Fair where I'm at now, the Bristol Renaissance Fair. Yeah. So I didn't have the weekend off anymore. And now I've accepted the fact that some conventions, if they're open on a Friday, mm -hmm. I'll be willing to, even if I have to fly across the country, I will be there for the Friday mm -hmm. and then fly back to wherever I have to do shows yeah. just so I can get there and make an appearance and see some of my friends. Awesome. Well, Adam, if people want to come and see your shows, uh, how do they get, you know, how do they get some information on where you're going to be, what festivals you're going to be at? I never post that anywhere. I suppose yeah. I should. Part of the hard part is I think most of my fans on YouTube are very spread out. So yeah. I don't know that many of them would purpose could purposely say like, oh, we're going to go to this fair. But anyway, sure. Um, yeah, I do four big Ren Fairs a year. Each one is about two months long. I do the Arizona Renaissance Festival in February and March. And then I do the Scarborough Renaissance Festival in Texas in April and May. Then I do the Bristol Renaissance Fair, which is on the, in between Milwaukee and Chicago. I do that, doing it right now. And that's July and August through Labor Day. And then in the fall, I go back down to Texas, north of Houston, for the Texas Renaissance Festival. Awesome. Guys, subscribe to Adam Winrich, Adam CWM on YouTube. Um, that stands for Adam Crack Whipmaster because my very first video is of me doing one of my first shows at the Bristol Renaissance Fair in 2007. Also, check out um, the Kitty Whips. Your wife is a whip yep. maker. She makes some great uh, performance hybrid style whips, nylon. Be sure to check those out for sure. And um, Adam, thank you so much for, for being on the show, my brother. I really, yeah, hope some people listen to it. Yeah, oh, they're going to love it. I enjoyed it. Guys, I had a good time. Uh, we, we did a little jam session tonight, uh, Steve, Adam, and I, and I, I plan on posting that too, so if you guys want to see us uh, jam into some uh, blues and E, that'll probably be on my second channel. So uh, once again, Adam, thank you so much. Steve, yep. thanks for joining. Blake, thanks for joining. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>